future. There are no people. There are no people in the future. No people at all. There are no people in the future. Where did all my people go? There are no people in the future. Let me try my people call. Everybody, everybody, welcome, welcome, welcome. It is Monday, February 19th, 2024. Welcome to Raging Chicken's Out to Coop Live. This is Kev Mahoney, editor and founder of Raging Chicken. On Out to Coop Live, we talk to progressives, activists, and troublemakers of all sorts, right from our own backyard and across the country. You can also join us normally at the end of the week on Fridays for our Friday Politics Roundup, where we break down the good, the bad, and the ugly in state and national politics. And you can get to all our shows by subscribing to our podcast on Podbean, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. You can also help support this show by becoming a patron for as little as five bucks a month. Head on over to patreon.com slash rcpress for all the details. And you can help out the show by heading over to our YouTube channel if you're not there already. Smash that subscribe button, like the stream for this show, and hit that notification bell so you know every time that we go live. And if you're one of our awesome podcast listeners, make sure to leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you listen on. And leave a comment to let other people know why you like the show. Little things like this help other folks find the show. Yes, everybody. And you may be noticing that we've kind of been, uh, format has been switching up and been a little flexible as of late. We had an Out to Coop Live this past Friday, and tonight we're doing more of a news, newsy, kind of newsy roundup type of thing. Um, that's all kind of in the mix as we're kind of uh, making our way into 2024, looking to find a kind of a little bit of a different kind of balance to what we're doing here. Um, but yeah, more on that. And for more PA Progressive Talk, tune into the Rick's most Rick Smith Show's live stream, 9 p.m. Eastern on his YouTube channel, Twitter, Facebook, wherever you get your streams. And check out his podcast wherever you get your podcasts. For all the details, go to the ricksmithshow.com for the latest across all his platforms. And the Sisters of the Night Caucus podcast is just fab. Fantastic. The amazing PA women stirring the political cauldron behind the podcast Rock the House. And they know where the bodies are buried. Make sure to follow them on Twitter at, at The Night Caucus. That's at The Night Caucus on Twitter. And subscribe to their podcast at Anchor, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And The Signal, yes, it's that great podcast from the Bucks County Beacon. The Signal is hosted by the Beacon's editor-in-chief, Cyril Michaleko, and produced by yours truly, Twice a month, the signal will shine a light on the right-wing extremist current streaming through Bucks County and beyond. Cyril invites guests who can provide insight, analysis, and organizing solutions that we can steer the community toward calmer, saner, progressive roots. Excuse me. Check out the buckscountybeacon.podbean.com and subscribe to the signal. You also got to check out the Civic Circle. The Civic Circle is a podcast, yes, another podcast for the Bucks County Beacon that tackles politics and policy from a Gen Z lens. Sarah Zhang, Mallory Marzen, and Alexandra Coffey are students from Bucks County, Pennsylvania, and once a month they chat about activism, advocacy, and all the political happenings affecting their generation today. Go to the civiccircle.podbean.com. Make sure that you subscribe. You can, of course, subscribe to The Signal and subscribe to The Civic Circle wherever you get your podcast too. Check it out. And attention all you gamers out there, The Game Inn, that's with two N's, The Game Inn is a Quakertown-based, black family-owned gaming store. They're friends of the show, and they've got everything for Retro N64s, the latest consoles, video games for all platforms, collectibles, action figures, Funko Pops, walls of Funko Pops. And kids get discounts when they do well on their report card. You can't beat it. Check them out on their Facebook page or follow them on Twitter at, at The Game Inn. Again, two N's. Got a question about a game, look for something hard to get, shoot a message or drop them an email at thegameinpa at gmail.com. A shout out goes to Jonathan Mann who wrote our intro song, There Are No People in the Future. You can check out all his stuff on his YouTube page and follow him on Twitter at, at Song of Dayman. Again, two N's at Song of Dayman on Twitter. And we've got some upcoming show notes. Uh, this coming Monday, next Monday, I guess, a week from tonight at 7 p.m., we'll be joined by Steve Oros and his lawyer, Lori McKinley. They're going to be on the show and they're going to be talking about his victory in the U.S. federal court against Kutztown University after the university's administration refused to grant Oros disability accommodation, accommodations following his recent heart transplant. Oros was faced with being forced back to in-person classes while COVID was still rampant or losing his job. He fought back instead, and he won. 
That's right. It's a fabulous story. And the implications for uh, our disability rights um, go well beyond Kutztown. Um, <coughs> Kutztown's abhorrent, the Kutztown administration's abhorrent behavior is not, of course, limited to Kutztown. Um, the uh, COVID has shined a light on the huge gaps in uh, protections for people with disabilities and for employers' willingness to abuse the American Disabilities Act. So, um, Kutztown University uh, shone a light right on that, and they lost uh, lawsuit after lawsuit. And so, we'll be talking to Steve next week about his case. So, on tonight's show, um, got a little bit, like I said, a little bit more of a newsy uh, Monday night, <coughs> closer to what we normally do on a Friday politics roundup. But maybe with a couple of, you know, specific foci, if you will. Um, it's been uh, it's been interesting to see the uh, um, Penridge uh, School Board, um, School District School Board, is now back in the news a little bit. As uh, again, the always fantastic reporting from Jenny Stevens um, uh, has you know continues to follow what's happening in the Penridge School District. And notice that there was a little bit of a, a kind of some concern um, being raised from the community members about um, the decisions by this decision by the school board um, to not seek um, new legal counsel. Uh, we'll talk about that in kind of just a, just a second. But one thing I, before we get into the show, I want to I want to just kind of um, mention something that um, I, I had hoped had come um, come come through fairly clearly on um on friday and my discussions with Catherine joyce about her piece on the penrose school board on the school board um and um the victories from the um, penridge community alliance candidates um the um one of the things that uh you know i had talked with with Catherine quite a bit before the show um and i guess some of this was in my was in kind of in my brain as we kind of went into the show um and, but Catherine also mentioned this during the show too as well that um, none of that article, none of her discussion, and none of her um, kind of reporting really would have been possible, or it would have been kind of a much different kind of approach had it not been for the amazing work of some of of many, say, local journalists, right, who really did the dogged work. And of course, we talked a little bit about Jenny Stevens' piece on there and the Bucks County Beacon piece there. Um, but uh, I, I also then want to make sure that I'm shouting out and everybody's kind of hearing it loud and clearly. I mean, like Emily Rizzo uh, was absolutely essential. Emily Rizzo was my like really one of the go to people, especially for, you know, during a time when a lot of focus was um, on Central Bucks. Uh, Emily Rizzo's reporting was just uh, absolutely stellar in terms of. Uh, continuing to draw the connections between what was happening in Central Bucks and then what was happening in Penridge. Um, she called out Paul Martino pretty directly. Um, her reporting was with WHYY, was pretty extensive. Uh, we And, you know, and then one of my, uh, one of the always disappointments for me was that we, we could never find a good time to kind of have uh, Emily on the show. I mean, it was like, you know, conflicts of time and, you know, different schedules and busyness and all that kind of stuff, whatever that may be. But um, it would have been great to talk to her. Chris Ullery, of course, um, has done uh, spectacular reporting. He's been on the show a couple times, talk about it, his, the in ongoing investigations that are happening there. Um, Maddie Hanna from the Inquirer um, has done, um, has done, you know, continued the work, you know, once uh, Emily Rizzo left WHYY and, and she was no longer covering what was happening up here in kind of bucks. We had Maddie Hanna kind of picked up a bunch of that reporting and there's others, but those, those are just some names. So I just want to, you know, um, make clear one of my reasons for wanting Catherine Joyce on the show um, and talking about having her talking about her piece that, um, that came out in Vanity Fair and the Heckinger report was that I, as I personally believe that it is really critical that stories that happen like the ones at Penridge and Central Bucks and what was continuing to be happening at Kutztown and Souderdale and a bunch of the other school districts where you see these kind of like um, well-funded right-wing attacks, that these stories break out of the region, right? That become more kind of national stories. And again, we had little blips of that, right? We had Central Bucks, you know, there was that, um, um, New York Times uh, podcast, you know, where you had the kind of the two part focus on the school board wars, uh, which did, you know, a kind of like 
offhand and mentioned to what was happening in Penridge without really talking about Penridge, really focused on what happened to Central Bucks and Mar Paul Martino's role in that. Um, and there were some national stories that were kind of like we're picking up in this. But again, it was um, my concern was, you know, you've heard me say this on the show multiple times is that um, while Central Bucks uh, was getting a like a really solid focus and understandably, right, not kind of like saying it shouldn't have. Um, but there was always, from my mind, there was always this opportunity to have this springboard, right, uh, where that now that we see what was happening in Central Bucks and because, you know, Central Bucks has got a different status, right, um, as a, you know, as a community than most other kind of uh, Bucks County areas and Pennsylvania communities. Um, there's been a long connection with kind of media outlets in New York City. There's been a lot of connection with artistic and culture outlets in there. Um, you know, it has the third largest school district in um, the Commonwealth. Hope, you know, it's a little bit more kind of wealthy than than a lot of the other communities around here. Um, leans a little bit more purple, if not blue at times, whereas, you know, in Penridge, we're, we're leans much more red. So the, all a bunch of factors like that would make sense why um, uh, you had you had some high profile discussion of what was happening in Central Bucks. But for me, they always, there was always that opportunity to use that as a springboard to look more deeply at this network of right wing funding and what was happening in school boards. And so, um, as we talked about on the show, as as uh, as Catherine said, as you know, Jenny Stevens from the Bucks County Beacon had reached out to her and say, "Hey, you know, look, you know, want we'll to put this on your radar." Um, uh, Catherine Joyce had also had just gotten off this stint of covering what was happening with Moms for Liberty down in Sarasota, Florida. That was the the first attempt to get Vermilion a Vermilion contract there, and then after that kind of reporting, right? That was right around the time we had her on the show the last time. Um, that's when Jenny Stevens got reached out to her too, as well, and said, Hey, you know, this is something to put you on the, you know, I want to put this on your radar. Um, and that's when she kind of continued to follow up with what was happening at Penridge. So, um, and so I've had, I've had some kind of like kind of background discussions with some folks. I don't want to kind of, you know, st step out of line here and kind of like, you know, tell you what exactly all the stuff we were talking about. But um, I just wanted to make sure that that came through, um, that it would never be my intention to uh, um, suggest that, you know, this national kind of reporting is really where, you know, that was the breaking story. We know how this all worked out. A matter of, you know, it started from the ground and the reporting that was happening here on the ground with people like, you know, Jenny Stevens, others at the Bucks County Beacon, with Emily Rizzo, with, you know, um, Maddie Hanna, with Chris Ullery. Um, that was kind of really important. And if you've, you know, if you've listened to the show for a while, you'll, you'll kind of recall, you know, one of the kind of origin stories of Raging Chicken was um, very much connected to that dynamic that I was just alluding to, is that is, is that there's, there's, there's always been this enormous gap between the, um, the ability to, or someone who wants to do, say, for example, um, investigative journalism, but even kind of more kind of progressive journalism. So um, it's something that we have like now we have the Bucks County Beacon. You know, there's, I can't tell you how many times I've worked with um, activists or even students at Kutztown University where I teach um, who really wanted to kind of do some of this work, but it always felt to them, right? And to me that there was, you know, the big question is, well, you know, how do you, how do you, you know, how do you find your feet doing that? Right. I mean, yes, there was a time where you could just go out and kind of, you know, post your own blog, especially during the early days of the blog and, you know, form these little kind of voluntary associated associations where you're kind of um, doing this kind of really cutting reporting and doing some good stuff. There's there's always that. But, you know, it was always it seemed like, you know, people look at these national magazines and say, OK, I want to get there, but didn't have any place to really practice. So once in 2010, after the Tea Party victory, um, in, uh, in those midterm elections there, in which we saw this kind of really destructive, uh, you know, far right libertarian Republican playbook go state by state, start to dismantle aspects of the public sector, um, in particular, you know, attack on unions, uh, attack on public education, um, that began in Wisconsin, um, that it became clear as well, you know, well, let's see what I can do. And we have done this, this kind of thing before I have done this kind of thing before, um, both, you know, in, you know, reporting with my union, but also, um, just when growing up in the punk rock scene, you know, you put together a zine. Anytime you see this gap, you kind of put together, you know, um, pull, you know, whatever, you put together the zine to help work things out. 
So that was what, how Raging Chicken was born. And we started, you know, started reaching out to, you know, folks that I saw doing, doing this stuff. Some people came to me and wanted to start writing for Raging Chicken. And that's what I thought I could do. You know, I thought I could make that contribution. So we start to build some of the, some of this capacity. Um, and it's always been tough because it's, you know, this is, you know, essentially, you know, I don't get paid for this stuff. Right. I mean, you know, we have, thank God for our members. Thank God for the donations that we've received over the years. Um, that's what keeps the light on. Right. Um, but none of that money goes to me. I, mean, I don't get paid for, uh, you know, producing this stuff. I don't get paid for that stuff. All the years of editing that I did before we even had a podcast, um, you know, I'm not getting any earnings from that. Um, so it was really, you know, I'm working full time, um, you know, pretty demanding full time job. And this is the kind of thing I do, um, you know, uh, on the side at work, as it were. Um, in my, you know, heart of hearts, I've always thought like, God, it would be awesome if I could do this full time. But, you know, look, it's just, it's just not, it's not, it's not, you know, possible. Um, and it, you know, it wasn't until, you know, really recently, like what, two years now, like that something like the Bucks County Beacon that had, you know, some decent funding, some people that were kind of behind it that could really start to build that out. I mean, that's the first time I've seen something like that in a while. Um, we also saw things like PA Spotlight, you know, Sean Kitchen, who got released, he got his start right here, you know, at Raging Chicken, right? His first work as a writer, as uh, someone who did research and stuff was uh, was when he was still a student at Kutztown University and got involved with the Occupy movement down in Philadelphia. Um, and he became very quickly, you know, kind of one of the uh, primary writers, became my, sec um, my assistant editor, um, did amazing um, investigative work. And then we, Sean and I together, originally launched Out to Coop podcast, which was just a Friday show at that point. Um, and, you know, now he's, you know, writing for the Keystone, right, on statewide politics, right, and doing the same kind of bang up work. Um, you know, it's been, it's been great to host a few interns throughout the years to help do this stuff. But, you know, that's, that's been the idea. And back in the day, I know this is a long aside from where I said I were going to, focus on tonight but i you know i just thought it was it was, it was important i really just it felt important to kind of come back to this so um the idea and i've i still believe this where local media um can really have an impact um and even you know small operations like like raging chicken growing operations like the bucks county beacon and kind of, um, and folks that are doing excellent reporting that are, are located in more traditional sectors like the Philadelphia Inquirer um, or like Emily Rizzo down when she was WHYY, um, is that you're able to, the local reporters are able to kind of um, focus in on things that, you know, national media are never going to touch. They're never going to touch because they see it as a local issue, right? And plus, you know, we could even say they don't have the resources to, to do that, right? I mean, you know, you know, even major newspapers don't have um, bureaus at every place that they used to, right? To really scale back their work, so that's all falling on the shoulders of, the, of of local reporters. At the same time, that you know, a tremendous amount of funds have been cut to local reporting. Um, but then the question is, is that when you have a story um, that is not just a local story, but it is part of a national story, um, it is the local reporting that has that opportunity, the opportunity to then build the networks with, you know, folks at the regional and national level so that that is kind of, you know, you, you, we called it, what I called it at Raging Chicken, we called it break and push, right? Is that we would break stories. We would kind of um, do this kind of investigative work. We would break down budgets. We'd get kind of right to no requests and we would write the local stories and we could often we'd got there first, right? But then through, as do, we did that, we we're also kind of like building these connections to social media and so on, to some national, um, national reporters, regional reporters, and so on. So when we had a story that echoed a lot of things that was happening in other locations, we were able to reach out to those folks, right? I mean, that's why Raging Chicken, we had, you know, we've got, we got picked up uh, the Rachel Maddow show. We got picked up Mother Jones, um, Huff Post cited kind of multiple, um, several of our articles. Um, we, we, you know, we, I, I could go on, right? I mean, this was, uh, that was a, 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 an actual strategy. And I guess that's kind of the way I think about this. And so when I, when I saw, you know, when, when Catherine Joy, especially since she'd been on the show before, and I know, I know her work, I've been, you know, been reading her work over the years. When I saw that, that finally that story was kind of getting into the hands of this kind of national, um, 
um, investigative, um, you know, uh, reporting thing like the in these times, um, I thought that was important to highlight. Right. And I also, frankly, think it's important for people in the community who have a felt sense that what was happening here at Penridge was not just a story about Penridge. I mean, how many times did you hear or have you heard people say, this is part of a playbook? And, you know, Catherine Joyce talked exactly about that on Friday. And I, you know, that's important for the community to see itself reflected back, right? That its story is being told, that it's not just something that's lost or ignored. That's, I think that's an important thing. It's also important. Like I call this the political yard sign like approach or, or not approach, but kind of like theory of things is like, there's always this debate and you've heard me say this before, but there's always this debate in political circles, like whether or not yard signs actually work. Right. Um, and you know, most say political people say yard signs don't work. Well, that's, that is only true in the most instrumental terms. And what I mean by that is that if, if your formula, if what you're trying to solve for is does X produce, convert people to vote or get people out to vote, right? So does the yard sign translate into more votes, right? And there's, there's plenty of research out there that is saying, look, this is kind of, you know, it, maybe it's a wash, maybe there's some improvement, maybe it doesn't make any difference at all. Right. There's been there's been it's been difficult for people to track and show that there's evidence, right, that putting yard signs up translates into people deciding to vote for a particular candidate. But that, in my mind, is such a failure of political imagination about what what the value of those yard signs are. And, you know, like I said, I was just talking to my wife about this and it's like, you know, it's it's putting up yard signs, whether or not it directly converts somebody to vote for somebody, putting up yard signs. And it's like, let's see, it's educative, right? When you're especially voting for school board elections and things like this, I'm telling you, it is hard to, if you are not connected to like, like, you know, a party institution or you're new to an area, it is incredibly difficult to find out information about school board candidates. It doesn't work like national candidates. They're not covered in the news. You can't look them up. You can't look at the back of the policies. You have to, and all the campaign mailers look the same, right? Whether they're on the right or on the left, they tend to say the same kind of things. You really don't know what's going on there. It takes a long time to learn the story. So yes, maybe that helps a little bit in name recognition, gets some of the issues out. But I think the most important part of yard signs is that it lets people know that they're not alone. And I, I think about my own neighborhood, for example, I've been told and seen right throughout the, you know, years that I've lived here, you know, that, oh, we're in a very conservative area, a very conservative area. You saw all the Trump stuff goes up and everything like this. And I did, this is not something I did consciously, but in the back of my mind, right. I translated that those discussions onto my neighborhood. I knew my neighbor that lives right next to me, you know, I know, okay, I know they like, okay, yeah, we can talk about stuff. We were both kind of, you know, um, we're concerned about the same things. We're kind of, you know, you know, you know, vote democratic and things like this. Right. So that kind of thing. But you know, in my brain for a long time, it was like, oh, well, you know, this is the kind of like Island, <laughs> right. We're on this little tiny Island here. But then when elections came out, especially when the school board elections started kind of ramping up and then you started, you know, getting lists of when you, you go door to door and talk to people and you get lists of people to go talk to, right? Um, whether it's about, you know, the election per se, or whether it's about issues in the school board. And suddenly you find out, oh my God, there's a lot of registered Democrats in my neighborhood that I never would have guessed, right? I never knew them, right? You know, you don't know everybody in your neighborhood, but like, oh, so, oh I, I didn't know that. And then when yard signs going out, you're like, oh, wait a minute. Not, not only are there, are there, are there are lots of registered, but look, there's people that that, that believe what I believe. And oh my God, a school board candidate lives right down the street from me. Right? And you start to see yourself in a different way, right? I mean, I don't mean that it automatically converts people to be part of some kind of community. Well, what I mean is that seeing things, right? And being able to imagine yourself as part of a community 
right? Not, not just through some abstract imagination, but then see yourself with that. It gets you to think about your community differently. And that is a slower process. That is not something that is like election cycle by election cycle. That is something that happens over time. Anyways, that process, and I see that in the same way as I see once you first start getting kind of local reporting on a particular issue, and then when it gets to a regional reporting, right? And then when it, if it makes it like an evening news or it makes a national venue, and the reporting is not just like criticizing or is not kind of dismissive, but is actually helping tell your story, that's validating to a movement. And I think it's important to a movement, especially in times when it feels like you know, we're all looking for, not we're all, I don't mean we're all, but like you have, a, you have a culture that is really about pitting people against one another. Whether it's a competitive job market, whether it's competitive, you know, like, you know, who's got more likes in social media or like who gets more traction and all that kind of stuff. And frankly, that's not valuable for cultivating a democratic culture. So anyways, I know that's a long way around it, but I, I just I just wanted to kind of address that because um, I, I kind of, I, I kind of got the feeling, and again, I might have this entirely wrong, but I've got the kind of, I got the feeling that there may have been, you know, some, some stuff I saw online or whatever, like the thing that like, I was missing that point. And I just want to make it clear that I, you know, I, I cannot tell you how much I value kind of a local reporting for that. So having said that, and then speaking of which, um, I know that there's some people who watch the show. Mm know about this so that Jenny Stevens just came out with a piece in the Bucks County Beacon, a Penridge constituents voice outrage over newly elected school board majorities failed promise to replace the solicitor. And there was a, uh, a finance committee meeting uh, for the Penridge school district, right? And school board and its finance committee meeting. And um, there, the, Finance committee did not make a move to replace the solicitor, right? The the lawyer for the district. If you recall, the lawyer for the district uh, was a firm called Eckert Siemens, and Mike Miller was the uh, his staff was the kind of really point person for the Penridge School Board, uh, um, the solicitor for the school district, and he was. He was very much seen in the community as working to help this right-wing school board accomplish really discriminatory things, right? Whether you're talking about the LGBTQ kind of like ban stuff, whether you're talking about the, you know, getting rid of pride flags, whether you're talking about the, you know, erasure of DEI initiatives, be the um, contract with Vermillion, we could go on and on, right? And there had been multiple calls um, for there to be a reconsideration of um, this contract that saying, given the track record of this law firm and the amount of money that this law firm um, cost the district because, right, it helped write and help protect the board, right, and in their process to do discriminatory things, right? The uh, Penridge Community Alliance candidates um, had kind of been campaigning on getting rid of this um, the solicitor or at least opening the bids up again, um, but that has not happened. And there was, um, and Jenny is reporting on this is this, this February twelfth uh, finance committee. Um, there was a decision that they're not going to replace those um, services, um, or at least not proceeding with a new uh, RFP, a request for proposals um, for new legal services. Um, and it's unclear. So I, I don't want to, I don't want to get too far over my skis on this one. Right. Um, but I do recommend that you check out um, Jenny Stevens' piece in the Bucks County Beacon. It was just published today. Penridge constituents voice outrage over newly elected school board majority failed promise to replace the solicitor. And I just do want to read this one part, which is that, um,
Let's see. Here's a part. So following Monday's meeting, this is the one from the, um, uh, the, the finance committee meeting last week, um, that a lot of parents uh, sent emails and text messages to the board, but uh, were disappointed with the boilerplate response they received. So they were, you know, that they were not going to seek things at this time. And this is the message that was sent out by um, the new school board president, Ron Wirtz. Said, and, his, and, and several of the parents, according to Stevens, um, were a little bit kind of annoyed by this boiler boilerplate thing. It was not a you know direct response. It was just kind of cut and paste, they felt. So it says, thank you for your email concerning our solicitor. At this time, we have decided to hold off on doing a search for a new solicitor. It is my opinion that the administration and most of the board are currently satisfied with his performance. I know some of the public are disappointed. A competent solicitor is critical for the school and the board. It is unfortunate uh, that those in the public only get to view him infrequently. Much takes place behind the scenes, and he has been viewed as having a positive influence on all legal manners. It is also important to realize that the board does not always follow his legal advice. Thank you for emailing. If you have any further questions, please let me know. Ron Wirtz, Penridge School Board President. And then here's a quote. This is how uh, Jenny Stevens finishes the piece. Um, the PCA candidates, the Penridge Community Alliance candidates, included firing Eckert Stevens in their campaign, and they won the majority of our community's votes in that campaign said Heather Young, a parent of the district. This is a betrayal, and frankly, I'm tired of seeing those we voted for not move forward on any issues, unquote. According to the district's YouTube channel, 255 people have now viewed the video containing discussion of the re uh, request for proposals uh, for legal services. Um, the next school board meeting is scheduled for Wednesday at 7 p.m. Uh, school board action meeting is scheduled for Wednesday p.m. So we're going to see where this goes. I, I wanted to highlight this for a couple of reasons, right? One, um, and again, this is another thing that I've talked about on the show is that um, with this huge victory, this monumentous, huge victory, this amazing victory for the Penridge Community Alliance candidates, right? The, 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 the natural, I don't want to say natural, but it's completely understandable why people would feel this huge sense of relief and think like, okay, now we're in good hands again, right? This is not to, I'm, I'm, I want to be clear. I am not knocking anybody on the board at this point. I'm not saying this board is a failure or whatever. Like, you know, I, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that it's important. One thing that community has learned, I'm, I'm, I'm sure of it, has learned the lesson of is that we don't go away, right? That it's important to continue to pay attention. And the fact that Jenny Stevens, the Bucks County Beacon, Beacon is still paying attention is absolutely critical for the movement that everyone has been building and for the expansion of democracy, right? We've heard so many calls for transparency in the community, so many calls that new things can happen behind closed doors, right? And I will guarantee you, it will feel uncomfortable at times when people that we were all kind of supporting whole hog might disappoint us, right? But then part of the job of the community is to go forward, right? and push for accountability. And by pushing for accountability, that, that doesn't mean we just go up there and call everybody hypocrites. Let me be clear about that. That accomplishes nothing. But it is pressure to remind people about why they are there and what their charge is, right? And that we're not gonna just kind of like, we're gonna learn our lesson, right? So I did, just thought that was kind of really important. Uh, another thing, I don't know if people caught this, but this is a, uh, well, I'm sure that a lot of folks have, but, um, since I'm starting here tonight with school boards is that Chris O'Leary, of course, had a great piece in, uh, uh, in Philly Burbs or the, um, the Courier Times about what's happening over the Central Bucks school board. Now, Oh, there's, there's a couple of them. Wait, where is it? Where was this one? What, I got the wrong one out, but because the, there's like two great pieces on here. So this one is a, from former Central Bucks official cites extensive work with the PA family. Okay, I'll just start with this one. So this one came out, let's see, uh, this came last week, last uh, Wednesday, I think, or Thursday. So here's the lead. A formal Central Bucks school board member is working with a nonprofit aimed at training conservative activists where she admits having worked extensively with two religious groups that have previously had murky ties to the district. Leah Vlasblom, former vice president of the Republican-led school board, 
lists her work with the PA Family Institute and the Independence Law Center in her work experience on the staff directory page of the Leadership Institute, where she now she is now listed as a school board trainer and researcher, unquote. Quote, while serving on the Central, board, Central Buck School Board, Lee has worked extensively with PA Family Institute, Independence Law Center, Keeping Kids in School Pack, Hope for PA, and Buck's Families for Leadership, Vlasson's entry states. This news organization has opened, uh, has reported extensively on I, and Independent Leadership Center, ILC's, influence in a growing number of school districts across the state, where the Religious Liberty Law Firm offers free drafts of policies aimed at reforming school policies, adding sex-based distinctions to athletics teams, and governing who can use which gendered bathroom. Like its parent organization, the PA Family, the ILC's policy suggestions often take aim at topics affecting LGBTQ students and national culture war issues. PA family is considered um, by the PA, by the family research is considered by the family research council, which is designated as an anti-LGBTQ hate group by the Southern Poverty Law Center, as one of 38 state policy councils that quote accomplish at the state level what the family research council does at the national level: shape public debate and formulate public policy. Unquote. Right. There's, there's, this is a great report. I mean, it's like several page report, so I'm obviously not going to read too much, but this is really fascinating stuff. Because this is, again, the, this is a great example of the kind of reporting that we need to continue to see and follow, right? By tracking that it was thanks to places like the, places like the Beacon, places like, you know, our, our journalists like uh, Chris Ulrey and, and Emily Rizzo and stuff, tracking this stuff, and Maddie Hanna tracking that stuff with the LA, uh, uh, the um, Independence Law Center and the Independence Law Center and the work that they did Right, behind the scenes, how they operated, how they brought their kind of far right Christian fundamentalist um, law firm and brought that into school boards and influenced them. And the way that they could do that was by not charging any money. So in other words, by not charging any money, they did not have to kind of like there was no forms. There was no paper trail necessarily to follow um, because it was there was no financial um, exchange there. But nonetheless, they had policies that they could just they were using. Now we're seeing that, you know, it's that it's that uh, revolving door is that this is, you know, this is the thank you, right? Thank you for the work that you did on the uh, the Central Buck School Board. Welcome into our fold. And now you've got a lucrative job that's going to be help kind of pushing the same nonsense elsewhere. This is the right wing machine, like at work. I mean, it is absolutely, absolutely fascinating um, that we see this. Um, yeah, uh, absolutely fascinating to see this, um, to, to see this going on. So do check that out. Again, this is Chris Ulrey's uh, latest piece called The Former Central Bucks of Official Sites Extensive Work to PA, uh, PA Family Council uh, with PA Family and with the Independence Law, uh, Law Center. Um, this is absolutely critical. The other piece that Ulrey had, the reason why I got myself confused, Ulrey had, but also uh, uh, Tabitha Delangelo, right, who is a um, school board member at the Bucks County, um, <clears throat> um, uh, I'm sorry, Central Bucks School Board. Um, she has got, she's a, a regular writer now in, um, in, uh, for the Bucks County Beacon, right? I should say, I'm sorry. She's a former school board member at Central Bucks School District. I'm sorry to make that clear. Um, she is now also, um, writing for, um, writing for the Beacon. And she's got a great piece in here about say why I didn't, um, quit the Central Bucks School Board. The reason why that this is coming out now is because there was a big blow up at the um, uh, the Central Buck School Board meeting um, the other night. Um, this is a, a tweet from uh, Diana Lagerman, uh, who you know has been kind of critical to the work that's been going on in Central Bucks. She says, during Tuesday's Central Buck School Board meeting, both Moms for Liberty members, Lisa Sisicio, uh, I can never say her right now, um, Sisicio and Deborah Cannon, both of them, resigned from the elected positions, further proving their work on the school board was about passing bigoted policies and oppressing students. And, and Lagerman goes on, this resignation comes two months after Democrats flipped the board, leaving Moms for Liberty members in the minority. Using MAGA rhetoric and conspiracy theories, uh, Lisa Sissio uh, said the new Dem board majority is on a witch hunt against the disgraced former superintendent, Abe Lukabal. Right. Um, <clears throat> That's great. That's just great, right? So it kind of goes on. 
So Deborah Cannons um, said she is resigning because she's worried about being um, individually liable for the actions of the new board, referencing the board's investigation in Luca Bell's, uh, Luca Bell's severance agreement. So basically what happened at the, at the meeting was that um, these two board members got all kind of pissed off because you remember this Abe Lucabao got this like big payout, right? Um, got a big payout by the by the Moms for Liberty dominated majority of the Central Park School Board. Um, basically, he was the guy who helped execute all their policies. And when they recognized that uh, Lucabao was uh, that he if he was remained as um, as superintendent. Right, then he might be, uh, I don't know, called to testify, right, about actually what happened, right, and then could potentially put at risk. So they quickly got him to retire, or he was basically, oh, it was a good idea to retire, and gave him this huge golden parachute to leave the district was well, as a thank you. And that got called up. Now, this is, now we're members of the, the newly elected board came up like, wait, 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 you can't do that. That is an unaccountable payout to the, this just doesn't happen. Like they paid him all sorts of money. So this was a moving piece, I thought, by Tabitha Delangelo about her very similar kind of types of experience, right? Um, and puts it in perspective. So I'm just going to read you a little bit from her piece uh, in The Beacon. So at the end of the school board meeting on Tuesday, two sitting school board members publicly resigned after the meeting was adjourned, though they haven't officially with letters of public, uh, they haven't officially with letters as the publication. These two board members, Lisa Sissio and Deborah Cannon, enjoyed having the majority of the sitting board members share their perspectives for the past two years. Now, merely two months into being on the minority, they decided to quit on the community and send a poor example to Central Bucks students. Now, to be honest, I understand the impulse. For two years, I served on the school board, her term ended in November, and I was in the minority. And for two years, I was disrespected, silenced, and harassed by the previous GOP majority board, including these two members. During Mrs. Sissio's statement, she shared her personal sacrifices, including family time. She said the, quote, stuff that was going on behind the scenes would blow your mind, unquote. This was one of these surreal moments. I had, I had said those same words so many times while I was on the board. One example is when both um, Mrs. Sissio and Mrs. Cannon read a long prepared remarks in an attempt to disparage me. They were upset that I spoke at a vigil honoring those lost or hurt in the January 6th insurrection. They parroted a comment from someone in the community who said that I referred to people in our community as far-right extremists. This was not true and easily verifiable if anyone had bothered to read my comments, which were published. But unbelievably, my two fellow board members lied about me in public. Behind the scenes, I asked for an apology. They told me unequivocally that no apology was forthcoming. It blew my mind. Or the time when the community board, um, uh, the when the board majority used community member or rather someone from outside of Sandra Bucks to take emails out of context and try to actually threaten me to make a, uh, make threats to me, make me a pariah in my community. Behind the scenes, I said, you know you're lying. And they said, we all get lied about, mind blown again. And she goes on. She goes on, she talks about when she find, finds out that the board, previous board was working with the Independence Law Center. She finds out that all the things that they were lying about. She said, I certainly day I had days when I felt like I wanted to not step down. She says, during my time on the board, I took care of my family, including extended family, worked a full-time job, was diagnosed and went through cancer treatment and endured constant abuse from community members and my fellow board members. There were days I said, I can't, but then I did. I did because thousands of people voted for me. Community members and students were counting on me to make sure their voice was heard. If I quit, I would be allowed to, um, allowing uninformed and sometimes bigoted ideas to um, be amplified with one less person to ask questions or to offer an alternative viewpoint. Isn't that what we want after all, diversity of opinion? And yet these two board members left. And I, I thought that's so important because you like, I'm so glad you wrote this piece because what you see from these, you know, these right-wing members is that uh, they're in the minority <clears throat> and they realize they're going to lose. They're just, they're going to quit and they're going to, they're going to take their ball and go home. And yet when they were in the majority, they were all sorts of willing to kind of be the most brutal and cruel they could to other members on the board who were in the majority.
they knew they had power over. And that is, I mean, right there, right? Isn't that kind of what we're seeing? I mean, one thing we want to say is just because, and what's at the heart of the story, right? What is the heart of the story is that, you know, there was an attempt to say, okay, look, we're going to look for, um, look into some legal action. Um, what's a, a Luca ball and see what's kind of going on. There was a meeting that was all the executive members of the board, like were invited to the meeting to kind of go and hear kind of the discussion, be part of the discussion. And uh, Lisa Sissio, I believe is her, like she couldn't make the meeting. And then when she called up the, the new lawyer and basically said, Hey, you tell me what it, tell me where everything that was said at that meeting, the lawyer was like, well, I can't do that. You know, you're at the meeting and that's what it was a confidential meeting. So now she's using that to clock, to cry victimhood, right? Even though she could have been at the meeting, she didn't, or she could have gone and met with the person, but the person was just not going to kind of like hand over the stuff. Right. And so she took that as like, somehow this is a big conspiracy theory. It's just, it's just incredible. So this beat goes on folks. This beat goes on this guy. I guess is what I'm, uh, is what I'm saying here. Um, it's something else. Uh, what else, what else, what else, what else? Um, oh God, there's so many things that are going on. Um, let me just look and see what I had here. One in five Americans believe that Berks County native Taylor Swift is part of some massive conspiracy to elect Joe Biden. Gotta love that. I'm sure you saw that. Um, but there was one other thing I wanted to point out, but I'm not going to find it right away. No. Oh, well, um, but those are a couple things that I want to have on the agenda for tonight. And there, there's, there's, I thought I was thinking about pieces that were, that were coming out that I thought were really kind of valuable for understanding what's happening, um, in our communities and stuff. And there's this really good piece in the Washington post that, um, that came out on Friday uh, by Sarah Ellison, uh, about Sinclair news. Now Sinclair is one of the largest media, uh, kind of conglomerates in the country. They own a whole bunch of radio stations and they're the ones that kind of they're the, the funding mechanism and the network uh, mechanism behind um, much of right-wing talk radio and so on. Like they were, um, nobody knows their name, right? Um, and yet um, they own tons. And this was a really interesting piece. Um, so let me just read you part of it and tell you why I think this is something to check out. Um, it's called Sinclair's Broadcast, Focus on Fears Aligning with Trump's Views of Cities. Um and the subheading on this is uh, Sinclair's recipe for TV news, crime, homelessness, illegal drugs. So every year, this is uh, Sarah Ellison, every year local television news stations owned by Sinclair Broadcasting conduct short surveys among viewers to help guide the year's coverage. A key question in each poll, according to David Smith, the company's executive chairman, is what are you most afraid of? The answers are evident in Sinclair's programming. Crime, homelessness, illegal drug use, failing schools, and other society ills have long been core elements of local TV news coverage. But on Sinclair's growing nationwide roster of stations, the editorial focus reflects Smith's conservative views and plays on its audience's fears that American cities are falling apart, according to media observers, Smith associates, and current and former staffers who spoke on the condition of anonymity to discuss internal company matters. Smith, an enthusiastic supporter of Republican presidential frontwinner Donald Trump, who has built Sinclair into one of the largest television station operators in the country, purchased the Baltimore Sun last month. In a private meeting with the Sun's journalist, um, he urged them to emulate coverage at the local Sinclair station, Fox 45, which in 2021 produced a documentary titled simply, Baltimore is Dying. Sinclair's local network of 185 stations across the country makes it an influential player in shaping the views of millions of Americans, especially at a time when local newspapers are rapidly being gutted or closed altogether. As Sinclair increasingly fills the void, it offers its viewers a perspective that aligns with Trump often stated opinion that America's cities, especially those run by Democratic politicians, are dangerous and dysfunctional. Quote, 
Suburban stations deliver messages that appeal to older white suburban audiences, and they play up crime stories in a way that is disproportionate to their statistical presence, said Ann Nelson, a journalist and author of Shadow Network, Media, Money, and the Secret Hub of the Radical Right. Quote, all of it is fear-mongering and feeds into a, ra a racialized view of cities. And it goes on. Uh, I could maybe I just had this wrong. Maybe they they are just the uh, um, TV stations. I could have sworn they they had got their start in radio, but um, but this is really important, right? Because they're built, buying up all these local news news stations. And one of the things that has happened, you know, we mentioned this. We talk a lot about this in in um, in newspapers, but local TV news too as well uh, has gone through its own series of crisis in terms of how you fund local news, right? Especially as things have become more and more privatized. And these big kind of conglomerates begin to kind of buy up these um, um, buy up these stations. Now, there's this book by this guy Barry Glasner. It's called The Culture of Fear. This is a book that was published like in the '90s, right, or early 2000s, maybe late '90s, early 2000s, right. And it essentially makes this point, right. Um, except he puts it in a broader context, right. It's not just this one guy Sinclair Broadcasting doing it. It has to do with the way that local stations um, figured out something about human psychology, um, thanks to the PR industry and the advertising industry, right? So what had happened is like local broadcasting used to kind of be the good, especially before cable, right? Local news is where people got their news. Broadcast news is where they got the news. And so you wanted the news, that's where you went. If you want it on TV, so that's where you went. Um, but when thanks to first to Reagan and then to Bill Clinton, they both had, um, they deregulated the media, right? And allowed, you know, anybody to buy up, own, own multiple stations and multiple networks. They loosened up the FCC controls and the fairness doctrine, all this other kinds of stuff, right? And right at the time this was, was, was happening, the, there was a, like a real crime wave, right? So like in the like in parts of the eighties and things like this, uh, 70s into the 80s, right? There was, the, you know, this 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 crime wave, um, and violent crime, right? And that, that was a real thing. And so they, so if you look at crime statistics, right, from you know the FBI, whatever you're talking about about violent crimes, the number of crimes were going up. But there was a problem, right? Is that local news stations or news stations in general, um, their coverage of it didn't reflect, like, how how that that was increasing. And so they, people started getting upset, right? They started complaining to their politicians. There were kind of movements about this, about the problems of crime and um, um, kind of in the neighborhoods and kind of in cities and a whole bunch of other things. And there's lots and lots of reasons for that, but put that aside. And so there was pressure that was put on um, local news stations. Local news stations were a little bit hesitant because they were worried they were losing viewers, right? They were losing viewers and they're, they're, they're getting, facing competition and now they're being deregulated and they're looking for what to do. But so then they started reporting on it. There was a push to report more on um, on crimes and violent crimes in particular. And so they start and 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 why that was also a problem. People viewership starts going down. The advertising dollars stop going to start coming stop coming in, and therefore it becomes even more difficult to do the news. So they start report reporting on this violent crime, and suddenly they find out that more people are starting to come back and watch again. But they're realizing that people are motivated by fear. And they develop a formula. This is during the during the during the nineties. <clears throat> they develop a formula in which they realize that if you lead, right, if you tease violent crimes in local areas, like lo you know, around kind of around in your area, if you tease it at the beginning of the show, you tease it again in the middle, and then you come back to the story at the end, that your viewers stay. And why does that matter? It matters because if you can prove to the advertisers that your viewers are staying, the advertisers come back. And so that's what you found. You find this turn in news coverage. And again, culture of fear, Barry Glasner. You can track, and he tracks this stuff. You can, sh he shows you what has happened, right? So now you have the violent crime going up and now you have the news coverage coming up. And then slowly, violent crime starts to dip again and starts to go down. <clears throat> and this happens during the Clinton administration. Violent crime starts to go down, but news coverage of violent crime continues to go up. And so you get this, and you get the graph that he has in his book is remarkable because the 
the uh, you see this there's this moment where the vi- the violent crime numbers start going down pretty dramatically, but the reporting keeps on going up, and so then it becomes a huge gap between what's real and what's actually happening. I mean, what's real and the kind of the imaginary, and so the industry, tele- local TV, right, realize that fear motivates people to stay there. And then advertisers who start selling things like locks and home protection systems and things like this, now they have a ready audience, right? So you've got new advertisers coming into the mix. But the bigger implication is that what happens there too as well is because, of course, this country has long associated, just like it says in that piece, right? Has long associated crime, right? With, you guessed it, race. Right, because of the systemic and ongoing racism in this country, right? Systemic racist structure of this country. It was not, it wasn't just that it was violent crime, is that they just put black faces there committing violent crime. They would tease with the kind of the the with the the underbelly of racism, right? So it wasn't just it wasn't just like that there's violent crime happening in your neighborhood, but it was being invaded by those those black people, by the, the Latino people, by the immigrants, right? And it kept people watching. So that was back in the nineties, right? That these advertisers were figuring this stuff out. When Clinton comes along and then also and then deregulates. Right. You remember, Clinton didn't help matters because Clinton's out there talking about super predators and all this other kinds of stuff at the time. He was a tough on crime. And so he like fanned the flames on that and helped deregulate the media landscape, which then saw the rise of Fox News, which saw the, a whole bunch of other stuff. So you can see that the, in that mix, look, the right wing, this is, again, we talked we talk about this with Catherine Joyce on, 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 uh, on Friday is like there's a there's a there's a playbook and it's remarkable that you live long enough and you start paying attention to stuff long enough you start seeing it's the same thing they're doing again and again except on sometimes it's on different scales sometimes different language but now we're talking about Sinclair not just a kind of like not just a loose network of local stations that are kind of realizing that the way that you kind of uh, you fund your newscast is because you plug into the 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 you fear and the racial the racialized kind of like I don't know genetic code of this country to um to earn your you know to 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 keep your station afloat. Now you have Sinclair an ideologically driven corporation, the largest kind of network of TV stations, local TV stations in the country, now able to carry that out as a conscious plan, right? So, I I mean, this is so critical, right? Because, I mean, it gets to how we see our world, how we think even at the unconscious level about the dangers in our world, where the real threats lie. Can you imagine if our local news, right, or news stations in general said that the biggest threat, like our biggest threat that all that was coming with was, was corporate domination, was Jeff Bezos, was the, the you know, these shadow, uh, a billionaire, uh, uh, dark money think tanks and stuff. Imagine if they covered them with the same amount of fear as, as they covered, like, you know. Horrific crime. And again, look, there is violent crime in the world. There's nobody's saying there's not. The question is, is like, is it an accurate representation of what are, what are its uses at? Sinclair knows that the way to kind of stoke the uh, stoke the base of people and people who do not even necessarily consider themselves politically engaged people, but are nonetheless carry all that stuff with them, right? That mix of what it is to grow up in this country, <laughs> right? Frankly. And if you can stoke the kind of like the racial resentment and fear among enough people. And then you plug in someone like Donald Trump, who's echoing that. Guess what? You got your magic. So great reporting. Um, great kind of investigation by Sarah Ellison. Um, do check that out. Sinclair's broadcast focused on fears aligning with Trump's views of cities. Uh, that is in the Washington Post, February 16th. Um, 
was the other thing I had? There's okay. This is the other thing. Um, uh, I'm not going to talk about this. Well, there's a couple other pieces. There's uh, something else I had here. David Dan's piece in um, uh, the prospect also from last Friday was called the gas industry squeeze play. Um, really worth checking out too, as well. It's about what's happening at the, what's happening with big oil. Basically, you may have seen this in the news that Biden administration has put a pause on some permits uh, for liquefied natural gas export terminals. Um, while it explores whether the project's climate, consumer, and community impacts are in the public interest, will not really prevent the U.S. from exporting electricity gas. This is kind of like what David Dane is writing. Um, and then Dan says, in fact, here you go, because of the construction of export facilities already approved before the pause, expert analysis shows that liquid natural gas exports will double or even triple over the next five years. The U.S. is already today the largest natural gas, liquid natural gas exporter in the world, though it, it um, though it commenced exporting only in 2016, right? That was, you remember, uh, that was Obama's initiative, right? Kind of talking about making uh, the United States um, the largest um, energy player in the world, right? That's, we saw this, this move. Um, but what's interesting here is that move for pausing, right? So what's also happening behind the scenes, you got obviously got the regular lobbying stuff going on, but you've got um, a big move, big oil of what they're doing is they're basically threatening the United States and these plants and these industries by saying, okay, we're just going to shift everything to Mexico, right? We're going to utilize our trade, you know, the, you know, North American free trade agreement, whatever the hell that Trump renamed it as. And we're going to use this as a put like a squeeze play upon the Biden administration, um, basically saying that, you know, oh, fine, we're going to, we're going to, you're going to lose a whole bunch of jobs. We're going to shut down plants and we're going to move down to Mexico as a way to try to pressure the Biden, pressure the Biden administration um, not to act on the limiting of, um, uh, fossil fuel production and exploitation, all that kind of stuff. Um, great piece by David Dayan. And that's important if we look at two stories that have just um, shown up in the news the past couple of days. This is from The Guardian. Uh, if you haven't heard already, uh, this piece is called February is on course to break unprecedented number of heat records. Um, Jonathan Watts writing in The Guardian says, February is on course to break a number of heat records, meteorologists say as human-made global warming or global heating and the natural El Nino climate pattern drive up temperatures on land and oceans around the world. A little over halfway onto the shortest month of the year, the heating spike has become so pronounced that climate charts are entering new territory, particularly for sea surface temperatures that have persisted and accelerated to the point where expert observers are struggling to explain how the change is happening. Quote, the planet is warming at an accelerated rate. <clears throat> we are seeing rapid temperature increases in the ocean, the climate's largest reservoir of heat, unquote, said Dr. Joel Hershey, the associate head of marine systems modeling at the UK National Oceanographic Center. Quote, the amplitude by which previous sea surface temperatures records were beaten in 2023 and now 2024 exceed expectations, though understanding why this is subject to an ongoing research, unquote. Humanity's on trajectory to experience the hottest February in rec recorded history after a record January, December, November, October, September, August, July, June, and May, according to Berkeley Earth scientist Zeke Hausfather. <clears throat> and it goes on. <clears throat> then follow that with, go. Oh, I guess I didn't. Oh, don't I do that? Where do I do it? I'm doing it. Oh, kills me. Oh, well, I don't have it. Um, I had another piece out there. I was also talking about some climate stuff too as well, where we're seeing, um, we've seen reports about this kind of consistently over the past couple of years about the um, concern about the collapse of the Gulf Stream, right? Of the, you know, of the, um, what do they call that? Uh, the pattern of the warm water coming up from the, the Gulf of Mexico, then it kind of dumps down or off the kind of the scope, scope, uh, the coast of the UK or Greenland. Uh, we're seeing that, um, that big concern about that. The other piece I had that I wanted to kind of <clears throat> touch upon, cause it was like, ah, it was a pretty fascinating piece <clears throat> is that they're finding out that in good portions of Greenland, the glaciers have melted back to such a degree that now you have <clears throat> exposed rock and thing and then plant life small scrubby scr uh, uh, shrubs and lichens and all the kind of plant lives beginning to grow on those areas, which will then also be an emitter 
of uh, carbon in these regions. <clears throat> and they're saying, what's that going to do um, and how that's going to impact things we don't know. Overall point there is that, you know, see, we see these kind of moves by by big oil and kind of natural gas and to kind of put pressure upon this. And we have big questions about jobs and everything like this. Like, but again, we can, I guess we got to do better. <clears throat> so anyways, I talked in all sorts of random different ways tonight, didn't I? I don't know. Well, um, I appreciate the folks who decided to kind of uh, show up and tune in. Um, I know that I uh, thanks. Those uh, who shout out to Ross, who basically uh, <clears throat> let me know that people were getting together um, the other night at Free Will. Um, so the Penridge Democrats and stuff like that. I wish I could have been there. I already had uh, stuff going on with my uh, with my family. So unfortunately, I didn't kind of get to meet up with everybody. I appreciate kind of reaching out and saying, "Hey, what's up? You want to you want to join us? Would have been great." Um, Lots of good stuff going on, right? Um, lots of good stuff going on. So as we approach the uh, the end of, well, I guess we're not at the end yet. We're kind of the second part of February. Um, I hope you all are doing well. Um, thanks to everybody who's uh, continued the focus on what's happening in our public schools, um, to all the local reporters out there, and to all of you um, who have helped make um, this podcast and all the work that we do possible. So, oh boy. I guess I'm losing my steam hard tonight. So it is what it is. All right, everybody. This is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. Want to remind you that you can help support this show by heading over to patreon.com slash RC Press. You can become a patron for as little as five bucks a month. Yep, five bucks a month. Nice for a good beer once a month. You can help us keep this going. See ya!